me open our Bibles real quickly to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll get to this in just a second here. Um, I'm going to preface this morning by basically saying we started a little bit of a, a brand new series last week. And what we wanted to do is we're calling the series Signs of Life. And the whole idea behind it is to really point to various evidences of God moving. In other words, because God's living and active and powerful and mighty, that means that wherever God shows up, we're going to see these evidences or traces or signs of God's life everywhere we look. We saw the greatest sign revealed last week, which is the incarnation, that God came into this world, that God added to his deity, humanity, God became man. And the beauty of that, obviously, we celebrated with Christmas. Uh, what we're going to begin to look now is um, kind of transition a little bit more and begin to look at some of the more subjective ways. We looked at last week more the objective way, the, the fact that what God did, it really happened. Now we're going to look at more some of the subjective ways in which God works in us, through us, to demonstrate various signs of life. And today we're going to take a look at sort of the subject matter of transformation, really what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel, uh, to, to live for God, to serve God, to love God, to walk with God. In other words, to be a Christian, what does it really look like? And so before we jump in, I want to, um, I saw a, a video this past week that I really liked. There were some good things in it, and I, I'm actually going to, uh, so aside from it being kind of um, an address from the queen herself, obviously she's not really our queen, but um, I, I want to listen to it. It's her 2012 address. Maybe some of you guys saw it floating around on YouTube, whatever. I want to watch it. But she said something really interesting at the end that I want to use to sort of springboard into the remainder of this. So uh, we'll get this thing ready. We'll play it. Just listen to it and uh, talk about it. This past year has been one of great celebration for many. The enthusiasm which greeted the Diamond Jubilee was, of course, especially memorable for me and my family. It was humbling that so many chose to mark the anniversary of a duty which passed to me 60 years ago. People of all ages took the trouble to take part in various ways and in many nations. But perhaps most striking of all was to witness the strength of fellowship and friendship among those who had gathered together on these occasions. Prince Philip and I were joined by our family on the River Thames as we paid tribute to those who shaped the United Kingdom's past and future as a maritime nation and welcomed a wonderful array of craft, large and small, from across the Commonwealth. On the barges and the bridges and the banks of the river, there were people who had taken their places to cheer through the mist undaunted by the rain. That day was a tremendous sense of common determination to celebrate triumphing over the elements. That same spirit was also in evidence from the moment the Olympic flame arrived on these shores. The flame itself drew hundreds and thousands of people on its journey around the British Isles and was carried by every kind of deserving individual, many nominated for their own extraordinary service.
as London hosted a splendid summer of sport. All those who saw the achievement and courage at the Olympic and Paralympic Games were further inspired by the skill, dedication, training and teamwork of our athletes. In pursuing their own sporting goals, they gave the rest of us the opportunity to share something of the excitement and drama. We were reminded too that the success of these great festivals depended to an enormous degree upon the dedication and effort of an army of volunteers. Those public-spirited people came forward in the great tradition of all those who devote themselves to keeping others safe, supported and comforted. For many, Christmas is also a time for coming together. But for others, service will come first. Those serving in our armed forces, in our emergency services and in our hospitals, whose sense of duty takes them away from family and friends, will be missing those they love. And those who have lost loved ones may find this day especially full of memories. That's why it's important at this time of year to reach out beyond our familiar relationships, to think of those who are on their own. At Christmas, I'm always struck by how the spirit of togetherness lies also at the heart of the Christmas story. A young mother and a dutiful father with their baby were joined by poor shepherds and visitors from afar. They came with their gifts to worship the Christ child. From that day on, he has inspired people to commit themselves to the best interests of others. This is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer this Christmas day that his example and teaching will continue to bring people together to give the best of themselves in the service of others. The carol, In the Bleak Midwinter, ends by asking a question right, of all of us who <laughs> That's good. That's all we need. Uh, you can watch the rest of it online if you want. But um, what I want to talk about today, basically, she kind of sets the platform for this. And what she touched on at the very end, obviously, after the nice little synopsis of kind of, you know, 2012, um, this time of year, we always really kind of think about charting a course. Like, what type of person do we want to be in the next year, 2012, or, you know, a new year? Lights went off. Uh, the new year always kind of creates sort of a new opportunity for us to really kind of reassess where have we come from, what have we gone through, what are the circumstances we face, where do we want to go the next year. In a lot of ways, it sort of marks a new chapter. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that we typically do is we try to set out, we form resolutions, we set out, we say we're going to do this better, this differently in the next year. And all of those things are fine. But the reality is how many of us actually really 
get into, say, March and are still doing them. I mean, the reality is, is that most of the time we have really good intentions, but our intentions aren't matched with real ability. And so what I want to begin to talk about this morning, and I don't have a very short amount of time, obviously, with kids in here as well, but what I want to do is I want to try to at least begin to sort of touch on some main best basic elemental concepts that, that relate to what it looks like to really be transformed. Because we can start out with some good ideas saying, I want to change, or we can set out with good resolutions that say, I'm going to be better, I'm going to do something different. But what oftentimes ends up happening is we really don't change. We might do good for a few weeks, and then after a few weeks, we kind of bomb out, we fail, we drop out. What ends up happening, we oftentimes kind of find ourselves full of despair. We really don't change. And what I want to really kind of throw out to us to think about is what the gospel does, is the gospel does actually radically change us. So what I want to begin to take a look at here this morning, sort of in the second iteration of this series called Signs of Life, really focusing on a upon the issue of transformation. What does it really look like to be transformed? So I want to basically begin by making the statement that in reality, we saw last week that Christianity is unique in that first and foremost, primarily Christianity, unlike many world religions, doesn't begin with a gifted teacher who gives good advice. Christianity actually begins with a savior that comes to save. And this is radically different. Because if Christianity started with a really gifted teacher that just simply gave good advice, then the reaction would be upon us in terms of how are we going to implement that good advice. In other words, if the way Christianity operated was you have a really gifted teacher, he gives us good advice, then that would mean that your response, the way that you advance, how good of a Christian you are, is totally dependent upon you. Totally dependent upon how well you implement that good advice. But if you're like me, you realize good advice really doesn't change you. Good advice gives you ideas to live according to. It sets a high standard, but it never really truly empowers your heart to do that. Does that make sense? So we can look at gifted teachers. We can look at people that have done great feats, great mighty acts, and be inspired by them and honor them. But those people don't naturally really change us or transform us. And what I'm really trying to say is this, is that what Christianity, uh, basically what makes it unique secondarily, is that Christianity basically focuses on not so much upon what we do, but how we do it. In other words, Christianity tends to be preoccupied, first and foremost, God cares about what motivates our obedience, This is really important to understand this. In other words, God's not just simply interested in your begrudging obedience. This is is sort of something that oftentimes I think gets mistaken for genuine Christianity. Because there's a tendency in the church today uh, to sort of have this mentality of like, okay, here's the list of 10 things, 15 things, 20 things that God expects from me to do in order to be a quote-unquote good Christian. So as long as I'm doing these things, then I must be a good Christian. I mean, typically the list kind of looks like, you know, going to church every Sunday, reading your Bible every day, getting a journal, uh, wearing a Christian t-shirt at least once a year, maybe throwing a bumper sticker on your car, right? Doing something that sort of indicates the fact that you're doing the Christian stuff. And we sort of have this mentality that as long as we're doing these things, then we're okay. But inwardly, 
the question really has to be asked, are we any kinder? Are we any more loving? Are we more forgiving? Are we more generous with our time, more generous with our money? Because the reality is, these are the signs of what it really means to be a Christian. There are external signs that demonstrate, that point to the fact that God is doing something inside of us. In other words, going back to what I originally just said, that God actually cares about what motivates us. He's not just simply after your obedience, your begrudging obedience. He is interested in what motivates you, the fuel, the engine that has incited you. And this is what I really want to focus on today in the few moments that we have together. And I want to read for us a passage out of the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, which really this whole entire thing is sort of uh, uh, framed loosely around. Because uh, what Paul does in this particular passage, he begins to talk about various challenges that he has. But all throughout it, he's been really pointing back to the new life that's been given to him in Christ. And so this sort of whole idea, this whole series kind of is framed from this notion that God has done something, that God has done something to initiate uh, work in us, and that there are certain reflections or actions that are provoked by the initiation of God. In other words, God began something, and then it's typically reflected in the way that we live, the way that we act. And what Paul is going to begin to talk about now in this little tiny verse, I want to just draw a couple conclusions on this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, and yes, I have a little slide with like bricks on it again. So just FYI, if you weren't here past couple weeks, that's for the kids. That's not because I have this strange fascination with Legos, but so there you go, kids. Enjoy it. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says this, the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations might say compels us. Some of your translations might say motivates us. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. And what Paul's basically pointing out here is that what motivates him, what moves him, what compels him, is this love. Not so much his love for God, although that is no doubt implicit, but what motivates Paul first and foremost, or primarily, is the fact that Paul is deeply aware of this fact that God loves him. I mean, this is, such a, this is a truth that has become so transformative in the apostle's life that it compels him, Paul says. It motivates him. It moves him. He knows that he's loved. In other words, let me put it this way. For Paul... God is not just a concept, God is a reality. God's not just a concept, God's a reality. I believe for a lot of Christians, or a lot of people that would profess Christianity, God is more of a concept than he is a reality. And what I mean by that is we can take a concept, an idea, and a concept could actually affect us and impact us. In other words, a concept we bring into our lives and we sort of adjust that concept around our lives. No matter what the concept is, it could be recycling. We could be like, I'm really into recycling. Well, you're going to adjust your life around recycling now. It means you're not going to buy tons of bottles. It means that you're going to buy recycled stuff. It means that you're going to, once you have a big bag or a big pile of bottles in your backyard, you're going to somehow find a spot and go recycle those things because you're impacted by the ethic, by the concept, by the idea of recycling. It's moved you. 
When something becomes a reality to you, it doesn't just simply move you, it radically transforms you, it changes you. It becomes the very factor that changes the very essence of who you are. So for some of us, we got to begin, first of all, kind of asking ourselves, is God merely a concept or is God a reality? It's because, again, a concept, you can live according to various ideas and rules of that concept. In this case, if it's Christianity. You can live according to the Bible. You can memorize lots of verses. You can sing Christian songs. You can do Christian stuff. You can go to church. You can play the part, in other words, and really be devoted and committed to it because you are committed to the concept. But when the reality changes you, something happens. Let me give an example of that personally. When I was uh, 14, 15 years old, I wasn't a Christian. Uh, my parents had just kind of divorced about two years prior to that, and I was lost, totally lost. I was freshman in high school. I was doing stuff that I regret should have ever been doing, but I got in trouble finally, and I was sort of in this phase where I was really busted. And yet what ended up happening was through a series of events, uh, my stepmom would share Jesus with me. And by her sharing Jesus with me, I remember, it's a funny thing, I was with Pastor James a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I should say, and it was actually in a Catholic church parking lot, because I was, I was Catholic back then, and, and we were sitting in the Catholic church parking lot in our brown, I don't know, 1986 uh, minivan, that was a Volkswagen minivan, Volkswagen van again, I should say, and there we were, talking to my stepmom, and somehow, in this reaction, or interaction going on between me and my stepmom, somehow, something what she said just made sense. And I look back now at that occasion, at that circumstance, and I realize that was the moment God, for me, went from merely being a concept to being a life-transformative reality. My life was radically changed from that moment. Now, I was still Brian. I was still doing dumb things. I, was still, I still had a filthy mouth. I was still doing things that externally that if you were to watch me, judge me, you'd be like, ah, there's no way that guy's a Christian. But what you didn't see what was happening inside my heart. Inside my heart, I was changed. Inside my heart, I was a new person. Inside my heart, I had new desires. And it took time for that, those desires internally to begin to make their way out externally. But that's what happens when God goes from merely being a concept to reality. We become radically changed. And what we see with the life of Paul is that Paul says, look, this is what motivates me. I'm not motivated by greed. I'm not motivated by all sorts of other things. I'm motivated by the love of Christ. So I want to take a look at three things very quickly, and we'll finish with some closing thoughts. First thing is the question, really, which is what motivates us? What motivates us? Now, the concept of motivation is sort of an interesting one because the reality is there's a lot of different things that can motivate us. So I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to respond. So uh, I'd love to kind of hear from you. What are some examples of things that actually can be used to motivate us to do things in life in general. Fear? Okay, let me talk about fear. Fear is a very powerful motivator. It is, in fact, the motivation that Hitler used to change a nation. Change a nation by way of fear. But was the nation really changed? So here's my question. Was Germany filled with loving, generous people that really just wanted to, to just transform the world? Like, we want to see the world be a better place. Not at all. Because they were basically coerced by fear, and the people that submitted to Hitler did so not because of like, oh, we love Hitler, 
but because they were absolutely fearful of losing their life or having their family come up missing somewhere. They were driven by fear, but fear was a powerful motivator. Fear actually, let me put it this way, it worked. Fear worked. So fear works. I'll explain why it fails in a moment, but what are some other examples? Money, money is a powerful motivator, but I think money sometimes, oftentimes, is attached to pride. I think money, really, at the end of the day, becomes sort of a means to a larger goal. Sometimes it might be approval. I want the approval of men. I want people to think of how great I am, so money becomes the means to be able to obtain greatness. The more goods I can buy, the fancier car I can have, the more televisions I own, the more houses I can accumulate, the more stuff I can somehow gain to impress people I don't really even like, somehow money becomes a means to that. But money is a very powerful motivator. Power is a very powerful motivator. It can move us and transform us. Uh, Not really transform us, but it will change us. There's the queen. Yes. All right, what are some other examples of powerful motivators? Lust. Love. I'll get to love in a second. Lust. Yes, lust. Again, uh, Definitely a powerful motivator. Some other examples? Power? Yes, power. Hate. Hate. Uh, I, I think of, you know, that movie V for Vendetta. Hate, right? Vengeance. Very powerful motivator. It motivated him throughout the entire movie to track down the one he wanted to give street justice to, right? Hate is a very powerful motivator, right? What else? Jealousy. Right, so here's my point. I, I also think of a couple other ones. Bribery. You know, you can bribe, that which kind of goes into money, I guess. Um, so the point that I would make is this, is that there's all sorts of different ways by which we can be brought into some form of manipulation. Force, you can force somebody into doing something. Um, pain, powerful motivator. All of these things, basically, is what I'm trying to say, is they work. They work. And here's the sad reality is that churches oftentimes have been guilty of using these things. Sometimes it goes something like this. You know, here you got a group of people that are like, okay, uh, if you really love Jesus, you'll show up at 4.30 in the morning at the prayer meeting. Right? So some of you are like, I, I love Jesus. I, like, I'll, I guess I'll show up. And others of you are like, I, I can't. Like, there's just no way. So you're sort of left kind of with this feeling of like, I, I, maybe I really don't love Jesus the way that these people love Jesus the way that I should love Jesus. Maybe I'm kind of a failed Christian. So what happens is sort of we use even various tones like that to sort of try to get and elicit obedience. And again, what I'm trying to say is that God cares about what motivates our obedience. If we just simply obey because that's the right Christian thing to do or that's because what the status quo in the church is sort of eliciting or that's what the leaders of the church are basically promoting and saying, if you're really a Christian, if you really love Jesus, if you're really you know, a part of what we're doing, then this is what you need to do. Look, at the end of the day, manipulation and force can create an atmosphere of obedience. But in the heart, you don't have people that are bubbling, overflowing with joy and care and kindness and generosity. People that are willing to just go the extra mile because really it started out from a false premise. So what I'm trying to say again is that God actually cares about what motivates us. Here's another thing I'll throw out. I'll touch on now, earlier, what somebody brought up. Love. Love is really the greatest motivator, which is what Paul says. But I want to point out the dark side of love. 
right? The dark side of love. What I mean by that is John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said something that I think is really important. He says this, people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Interesting thing about that particular word love, it's the actual Greek word agape. Like, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you've always have heard of the word agape. We oftentimes think of the word agape as being like the love that's attributed to God. And indeed, it is. But at the same time, the reason why it's attributed to God is because it's a love that speaks of committed faithfulness. It's the idea of fidelity. You are faithful. You are devoted, completely devoted to the thing that you care about. In fact, I would go so far as to say uh, agape is the complete opposite of sentimentalism. You know, when we think of love in our culture, we think of sort of this warm, fuzzy feeling that we have. Like, oh, I love someone or I love this thing. And we think of this sort of sentimentality that goes along with it. That's not the type of love, per se, that agape speaks of. Agape is this idea of committed faithfulness because you see the value of something. So when Jesus says they are committed, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil, they love this evil because of the, the, the love that's in their heart, what Jesus is saying is that that becomes the motivator. But here's what Christianity does. Here's what the gospel produces. This is the absolute miracle. So if you're a Christian here today, you need to hear this. Because this is what God has done in your heart. This is what God did in my heart, sitting in an 86 Volkswagen Vanagon in a Catholic church, without me even knowing it, without me even giving the permission for it. This is what God did to me. God did a miracle. This is what the miracle was. God took out a stony heart of flesh, or stony heart, and gave me a heart of flesh. In other words, what God did in an instant is he changed the desires of my life by changing my heart. If you're a Christian, that's what a Christian is. He shifts the decimal point of what we love. Rather than loving the things of this world that are evil, that are broken, he then shifts our love to something higher, something greater, something more beautiful, something more lasting. That is what the Bible describes as the miracle of salvation. If you're a Christian, you need to know this, that that was one of the most unbelievable miracles that God has ever done in your heart. If you have any slight desire, love, affection, stirring in your heart for God, that's a gift that God gave you. Because naturally, your heart loved darkness. Your heart loved the things that are not of God. Your heart loved the things that didn't belong to God. Your heart loved the wrong things. And that's what motivated us. But what God did through salvation is he changed the motivation of our heart by changing what we love. Jesus revealed himself to us. You know, look, at the end of the day, all a preacher really needs to do just needs to show people the beauty of Jesus. Because really what salvation is, look, at the end of the day, I can sit here and try to give you some sort of logical argument why God makes sense. You can spend all you want trying to make logical arguments, and I think there's a place for that. I think it's great to have academia and academic discussions and lectures and dialogue about the importance of Christianity and why it makes sense. But at the end of the day, what radically changes someone's heart is just seeing absolute beauty. I can convince you of how beautiful the sunset was last night. I took a photo of it last night, posted it on Instagram and Facebook. This is a beautiful sunset. I was just driving down the street. I saw it. It was on Foothill Boulevard, and I thought, it's beautiful. There's this big lake out there, big 
river, stream, whatever it is it's kind of connected to, Laguna. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and take a photo of that. And it was just pristine. It was perfect. And the moment I got out of the car to go take a photo of it, a huge school of, I don't know if you call them a school, a bunch of ducks were kind of swimming. And it kind of put all these ripples in it. And it ruined my photo. But I think it still turned out pretty good. But the point of the matter is I could tell you about how beautiful the sunset was. And some of you might be like, all right, I'm convinced. Because sometimes San Luis gets pretty sunrises, sunsets. Or you could have actually saw it last night and been part of it. Or maybe you saw the photo that I posted and were like, ah, I saw that, but I was in a different location. And there's a different experience that happens. It's different to just simply assent to or come to this conclusion that, yeah, I believe San Luis has beautiful sunsets. Or actually being in that sunset, in the moment, watching it, seeing it, being absorbed by its beauty. That makes you a believer. What Christianity is, is that God opens our eyes to see the infinite beauty, value, and worth of Jesus and the fact that he loves us. And that changes us. That causes something to happen, to shift, to transform, to take place in our hearts. That if he loves us with that type of love, why would I not want to drop everything? embrace that that's what jesus does that's what salvation is the second thing i want to take a look at question is what does it matter why does it matter what motivates us and this sort of gets into some questions that i really want to just tackle real quickly i wish i had more time to look at it but the reality is is that we know that there are various things that motivate us so the real question is why does it matter what motivates us i mean the sort of idea that says you know doesn't the uh you know ends justify the means in other words it doesn't just really matter that we're just a group of people as a church. Isn't it just more important for us to be a group of people that pray all the time? Isn't that the most important thing? Well, it sounds good, but what if you're all praying as a church? What if you're all in the Bible as a church, but internally your hearts hate it? You're not really into it. You're not happy. You have bitterness in your heart towards other people. There's unforgiveness in your heart towards other people. You're not generous with your money, with your time, with anything. But there you are. It's the church that's praying. Look, God cares about what motivates us. He really cares about what motivates us. And the point of the gospel is that when the gospel makes sense to us, when Jesus reveals himself to us and we see how beautiful he is, guess what happens? We want to pray. We want to be near him. We want to be with him. We want to be like him. And we know that the way that we are made like him is we spend time with him. Look, at the end of the day, what motivates us matters because we can be motivated by false things, but at the end of the day, what God wants to do is he wants to transform us, change us, and then change our churches, change our families, transform our communities, transform everything around us, that God is up to something in a universe, something that's life-giving, something that's transformative. And the way that it begins is not by God coming into this world as a king, saying, I'm here, new rules apply, and if you don't listen, I'll crush you. Now, that might elicit obedience, as it has elicited obedience throughout history. When the Romans came in, people obeyed. When the Babylonians came in, people obeyed. Because if they didn't obey, they'd be crushed or there'd be a crucifix for them to die on. Yes, there's obedience, but there's not an overflowing sense of love and kindness. And that's what Jesus is looking for. So it matters really what we're motivated by. 
what changes us, what transforms us. Because look, at the end of the day, you, got, you know, you got young kids. I remember times when my kids were young, and you know, if you're anything like me, like there, there are moments where you're like, you, you, you know, you revert to or resort to like threats or bribery, right? And bribery is really good. You're like, all right, if you stop yelling in the store, I'll give you, you know, you fill in the blank once you get home. And look, at the end of the day, does that work? It totally works. I can get my kids to obey in that moment anytime by using, you know, coercion, using force, using bribery, using manipulation. I can get them to obey once. But if I really want to get my kids to obey for a lifetime, something has to be done in their heart. It's the same thing with giving. It's the thing that Paul's actually going to touch on a little bit later in the book of Corinthians. Is that sometimes pastors are really good at being manipulative, trying to talk up ways in which getting people to, to give, to manipulate people, to cause people to feel guilty or shame if they don't give. And the reality is, is that people can give for a moment. They can give in that instant. But if you want to create a church filled with generous people that give for a lifetime, their heart has to change. And the only thing that changes that heart is if they understand the beauty that's found in the gospel. God cares about what motivates us. The third and final thing is this, is that how can we motivate our hearts rightly? In short, it really boils down to this. By looking to the beauty of Jesus. That's what motivates our heart. This is what Paul is basically saying. This is why even in the passage here, Paul makes this point. He says, the love of Christ controls us. And he finishes with this little statement here at the very end. He says that all those who live might no longer live to themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised again. What Paul is basically saying, Paul oftentimes kind of uses little snapshots, little statements, little words. These are kind of like little suitcases. And a suitcase... If you're going to go on a journey, you don't bring your entire closet, right? You just take a suitcase. And in your suitcase, you put, you know, like a hand, some of you are like, I actually bring my own closet. All right. Just got to go with me in this metaphor in just a second here, this little analogy, right? The point of the matter is, is when you go on a trip, you bring a suitcase. And in your suitcase, you don't bring your entire collection of clothing. You bring just a selection of clothing. This is what Paul does oftentimes throughout the Gospels. Or throughout the epistles when Paul writes, Paul gives these little snapshots, these little statements. And when Paul says something like, Jesus died and rose again, what Paul is basically doing is it's sort of a, a little collapsible picture of everything. The breadth, the height, the width, the depth of everything that Christ has done for us. That he suffered on our behalf simply because he loves us. And to the degree that you see that Jesus loved you, now again, his love for us is not simply a sentimental love. It's not that God's up in heaven just weeping like, oh, I love them. Like, I'm sure there's an emotion that God has. But it's deeper than that. And if you're married or if you have kids, you know that love has to be deeper than a sentiment. Because you know that like on your wedding day, there's a lot of emotions. I've done a lot of weddings. And I've seen a lot of dudes, big dudes, cry. I'm just like up there like, all right, this is dude, big dude's crying again. Like, this is awesome. This is very emotional. But the reality is, is that sentimentality won't carry you 12 years into your marriage. It's got to be deeper. There's got to be something more lasting than just that simple emotion. And this is what the gospel basically says, is that because God has done the things that God has done for us, it's not just simply a cheap sentimentality but it's anchored in his 
faithfulness, God's faithfulness to you, God's faithfulness to his people Israel, that God is faithful, that he doesn't just simply wink at sin or offenses, he doesn't just simply sweep it away, he takes it upon himself, he absorbs into himself, suffered, died, our offenses, and in exchange gives us his right place. In other words, he looks at us as sons and daughters, adopts us as heirs, joint heirs with Christ, that God gives us everything that he himself is, all because he loves us. And to the degree that we see that and our hearts are moved by that, here's what it does to us. It changes us. That in other words, for me to obey, rather than me trying to obey to get God to like me, and there's a lot of Christianity that sort of gives this sort of idea that now that I'm a Christian, now that God saved me, I've got to work really hard to be a good Christian. And there's a lot of Christians that sort of approach God like this, trying to read their Bible as much as they can, try to pray as much as they can, try to go to church as much as they can, somehow trying, attempting to earn God's favor. But I'll tell you what, that motivation will end you in a place of total sheer burnout. You will hit some point where you will just completely fry yourself because you realize you can't do enough. If your right standing with God is dependent upon how hard you work for God, you will always feel insecure because you will always look at yourself and think, I'm not doing enough. But the gospel is not based upon your right standing with God. It's based upon Jesus' right standing with God. It's based upon what he's done for you, not what you are currently doing for him. And if you believe that, and if you let that soak in your heart, and you know that you're loved, not with some cheap sentimental love, but with the deep, covenantal, committed type of a love that God loves you in spite of who you are, and that when you work really hard, God's love for you doesn't grow, and when you fail God, God's love for you doesn't shrink. God's love always stays the same because God always says the same. When you believe that, here's what it does to you. It makes you secure. It puts you firmly planted on a rock of God's faithfulness. It allows you to realize that your security is not found in money. So guess what? Money becomes an object now. An object. Not the main God in our lives. It becomes an object that we can now use. We can gladly, joyfully give it away because our identity is not found in it. It's just an object that we can use for God. We can be generous with our time. Because our time is not just something that we use to somehow build up our name, to somehow build something about ourselves, get people to like us or to affirm us. But our time becomes something now that God, because God entered into time, gave us his time. Now I have time to give back to God for his name's sake, for his good pleasure. Because I love him. Because he first loved me. So the final question is this, and I'm done, is what are some things that we can do practically to motivate our hearts rightly? Like I said, to be looking to Jesus, to be reminding ourselves of his love, but finally, I think the thought along the same lines is that some practical things that we can do. Now, I'm going to go back, because I know earlier I talked about, you know, reading your Bible and stuff like that. We love to read our Bibles. I don't want you at all to take away this impression that, you know, he's knocking, reading our Bible. I'm not. In fact, I would go so far as to say we read our Bibles, but we want to make sure that we read our Bibles rightly. That we're not reading our Bibles somehow to earn the favor of God. 
We don't do spiritual disciplines to somehow get God to like us or give money away to get God to favor us. We do these things because we have God's favor. Do you see the difference in the motivation? If we are motivated to do spiritual disciplines as an attempt to get God to have favor with me or favor for me or over me, then at some point you will give up and you'll be totally full of despair or you will actually delude yourself into thinking you're doing all these things and you're doing them really well and you'll become arrogant and prideful and look down with anger and frustration and self-judgment upon others that aren't doing those things. But if you see the fact that God gave himself for you because he loves you, then out of love and affection back to him, you want to read your Bible because your Bible becomes a means or a way by which to see the beauty of Jesus. You want to devote yourself to forms of community, to be involved in community groups where you can be surrounded by other Christians, other people that love Jesus, to help give you a portrait and a picture of Jesus regularly. Because if Jesus is what changes us and transforms us, then what we want is more images, more glimpses, more pictures of Jesus in our lives to stoke and to fuel that fire. Look, at the end of the day, I think there's a tendency to look at a lot of movies and whatnot and think that a lot of them are just false, right? For example, fairy tales. We look at fairy tales, and the typical plot line or theme in fairy tales is at some point there's like this knight in shining armor that comes in and rescues this damsel in distress, this person that's broken and hurting or in a coma or somehow ate a poison apple isn't waking up and somehow is in a desperate state and needs to be awakened from their deep, deep slumber. And what typically happens is, you know, somebody comes in, a knight in shining armor, kisses the beauty, rises her out of her sleep, and they live happily ever after. We typically watch those shows and we kind of, in our mind, we think, you know what, we know that's not true. Or we think, I wish that was true. But then we kind of go back to sort of the cynicism of like, I don't think that's true because maybe bad experiences that we had in our lives. But do you know the reality of those types of shows, those truths or that storyline? Actually, in a very clear way, is the gospel message. That we have a Savior that came into this world, that he rescued people from their deep sleep of death because of their sin. That he rescued us, he came into this world on a rescue mission to deliver, to seek, to save those who are lost, to wake them, to rouse them. And the way he does that is the reason why we love those movies because at the end of those movies, especially if you're a woman, right, or a little girl, and you're watching those movies and it begins to kind of form this basis in your mind, you think, I just wish that there was someone out there that would love me like that with that intense love to devote themselves entirely, faithfully, completely to me. That's the gospel truth that someone has. Jesus has. He's come. He's rescued us to the degree that you believe the truth of that message, that he roused us, woke us out of our deathly sleep and given himself completely to us to the degree that you believe that. What that does is it provokes love in your heart to him who loved you first, that love becomes the basis of transformation. That changes you. It transforms you. I want to invite you into that. This is the truth. This is the beauty of what the gospel message is really all about. Look, at the end of the day, the secret 
of spiritual growth in the Christian life, the way that you're going to grow more rapidly, more completely, is not by focusing on what you can do for Jesus, but rather by focusing on what he's already done for you. Let me even put it this way and I'm done. If you focus on what Jesus has done for you, the beauty of who Jesus is, your heart will swell, it will grow, it will be filled with affections and love to Jesus. If you focus on what you need to be doing for God, all the special things you need to somehow be doing to better improve yourself, to better improve your life, your heart will shrink and become more self-focused. So the key of gospel Christian growth is the exact opposite of any other type of self-help growth program in the world. The key to growth in the Christian life is to stop focusing on our efforts, stop focusing on our works, stop focusing on what we need to be doing, and begin to focus upon the greatness of what Jesus has done for us already. And to the degree that your heart marinates in that truth, is filled, flooded with that truth, something will happen to your heart. You will become filled with love for this God who incredibly, in so many ways, loves you so And you will then become someone that wants to pray more. You will want to give more. You'll become a better person. You'll become someone that sees people differently rather than just seeing them as stepping stones to advance your career. You will see people as image bearers of God that you get to love and serve the way God loved you and served you as the queen stated. That's the gospel truth. I want to see our church filled with people that are not just simply doing stuff just to do it. But if we can be a church going into 2013 that has a motivation in our heart that's fixated, focused upon the beauty and the greatness of Jesus, I think we'll see amazing things continue to happen. People's lives changed. People saved. People discipled. People sent out. We're going to finish. I'm going to have Shadi come on up. He'll lead us in a song of worship to close. I'm going to pray over us, and as we close, I want to invite you into this, to sing, to love God. We have communion in the back, in the three little areas back there, and I want to invite you to partake of communion if you'd like. You can do so as a family. We encourage you oftentimes to do it as a family, as a community group, uh, as a little group of people gathered together. And So I'm going to pray. Shadi's going to come on up, wherever Shadi's at. Is he here? Maybe Shadi's not here. Um, I will pray. Okay. Um, and hopefully as I'm done praying, Shadi will be magically in appearance. If not, let's do this. Let's just spend a few moments together all praying out loud. Like we did last week, okay? A few weeks ago, okay? That's what I'd like to close with. A few weeks ago, we just took some time to just declare the praises of God. So I'd love to, for us to do that. So I'm going to pray. kind of close this up. Here's Shadi. He'll close this up. But I'd like to spend a moment or two, just all of us, you can shout it out. Make sure you shout it loud enough so that people can hear. Um, and if somehow maybe someone says it and someone over here doesn't hear them and they speak it too, uh, you guys can give other person the right of passage. That's fine. Um, then when they're done, you can say it out loud. But say it loud enough so we can hear you, so we can rejoice in the good things that God's doing. So declare the praises of God. All right? I'm going to pray, and then we can just shout out, declare the praises of God. Just Those are like little simple praises of, God, thank you for your greatness. God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your love. Think of things in which God has been good to you in this past year, maybe in this past week, and then thank him for that out loud so we can hear you, and we'll finish with a song. God, thank you for greatness. 
that you've revealed to us through Jesus. The greatness, the power, and ultimately the beauty that's been shown to us through Christ. So Father, right now we want to just, we want to consider, we want to meditate, we want to steep ourselves in your beauty. And God, that our hearts would be changed and motivated and transformed. And God, bad motivations that we've had in our hearts that have actually maybe stymied us or have kept us broken down or have left us in a place of feeling just battered and defiled and messed up. God, I pray that you would just simply um, change and rewire the motivations of our heart to love you.